Welcome to another episode of Football and Grits. Uh, a lot has happened in the SEC, and we'll be joined by someone who usually does not join us. I am your host, David Ubbin, uh, with my co-host, Andy Staples. And by now, you might have a guess as to why our LSU writer, Brody Miller, is also joining us. Uh, the Ed Orgeron era is not over yet, but coming to an end here in a couple months, and uh, officially... Uh, a separation agreement in place. Ed Orgeron will coach out the rest of the season. Uh, so you have two seasons after winning a national championship game, uh, bringing a national title to, to LSU. Uh, and Ed Orgeron is out. And if you are a casual fan or maybe somebody who has not paid super close attention to what has gone on at LSU, you might say, what the heck? Uh, does the national championship not mean anything anymore? Brody, you've been closer to it than anyone, so we'll start with you. You wrote a fantastic piece that's up on The Athletic right now, kind of explaining that, but for those who have not seen it, how do you get here? How do you go from holding up a national championship trophy to 21 months later being uh, signing a separation agreement? Yeah, I, I think it's something that is so hard to wrap your head around because I think there's going to be a very understandable, for what it's worth, but maybe unfair jump to a lot of people of 2019 was a fluke or 2019 is like, like that this is all proof of this is who Ed Ojean always was. And, and Hey, maybe that's accurate. I don't know the answer to that, but I think what we're really seeing over these last two years is a guy who did earn it, who did all of the things that in my opinion, covering this team got them there. He fixed a lot of the problems, the less miles era. He, you know, he made some essential hires. He recruited really well. He got the pieces that got there. Like, I don't think this is Gene Chizik because he built the roster with 15 draft picks and, and an amazing staff. He did that. And then what you saw was a, a slow and steady whittling away of what brought success. I think you saw a guy who, and I get into this a lot in the story, I mean, reached the mountaintop of his life right when maybe the worst time for it. Reached the mountain of his life right as he's getting divorced right as the pandemic hits three months later, right as he has to replace his whole team. And I just don't think uh, it was great timing for him to keep that going. You saw poor hires from Bo Pelini to Scott Linehan to, you know, Jake Peets and Durante Jones. You saw the culture shift with mistaken political comments, for lack of a better term. And, you know, just uh, players not having leadership. And then you saw, you know, his off-field behavior, quite frankly, which we don't have to dive into at all, but – that was also a problem in this. And that, I think if they were just doesn't help you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if, if they yeah. were just losing, he might be okay for at least another year. But you add in those off the field issues, a Title IX scandal on top of his own personal stuff, and I think that's how you get here. It's it's a fascinating display of how you can get success and how you can lose it so fast. Yeah, I think if you're winning, people will put up with a lot. Um, but if you're losing, and not even necessarily losing, losing, but just not meeting your potential. Time runs out a, a lot quicker. So I, I'm not surprised. I think it's probably the right move for LSU. Andy, for the contingent that, you know, probably not LSU fans, but just folks who think this is, might be unfair, do they have a case at all? Is there a case that, well, if you win a national no. title, you should get more than 21 months regardless of what happens? No, you're always supposed to be good at mm-hmm. LSU. 
They've been bad for two years by their standard. I don't know if they're bad. They just beat Florida yesterday. But by their standard, they're bad. And they should be good given the players that they've been able to recruit. And and that's Ed Orgeron's been recruiting well. It's not like he inherited a bunch of Les Miles players. He won with them. That That's a trope that's out there, and that's dumb. Yeah. Ed Orgeron got Joe Burrow to come to yes. LSU. So that's the most important recruit of all of them, and Ed Orgeron got him. So it's not that it's fair or unfair. There's no, there's no fair when you're in the SEC West where you're in a program that expects national titles. You e- either are good or you aren't, and if you aren't good for long, then you're out. That's period. It doesn't work any other way. It, you have to be good at LSU. Nick Saban gave everyone the blueprint, and Nick Saban won a national title there, and Les Miles won a national title there, and Ed Orgeron won a national title there. And so we can look at that and say, that is a place where many coaches, you don't have to necessarily be Nick Saban, because I think if you look at Les Miles with a critical eye, and you look at Ed Orgeron with a critical eye, those are not necessarily all-time great mm-hmm. coaches, but they won national titles there. So the place has some inherent built-in advantages that other places don't. And so it is reasonable for their expectations to be much higher. And so if you're going to be mediocre two years in a row, then yes, you are at risk of getting fired. Yeah, I, Fair or not, it doesn't matter. That's the, that's the yeah, way it I works. Yeah, I think it's just as simple as, you know, I, uh, 24-7 team composite is not a perfect science, but it gives you a good indication. LSU number five in overall talent on their roster. You don't have to win the national championship every single year at LSU. You don't have to win the SEC West, especially with Nick Saban, every single year. But you can't be 9-8, and eight, and as you look for reasons why this will change, I, I don't see any. Uh, there wasn't a trajectory that says, well, if this happens and this happens, this is going to turn around, or he's gotten some bad breaks here or there, and this can turn around here. I mean, that I think more than anything – more than the the underachieving, the sort of averageness of LSU's team. There's just not a lot of reason to believe that it was going to flip. He got a chance to reboot his staff. It wasn't working. I mean, Brody, is is it pretty much just that simple? Is, is there anything that we're missing that says, hey, there's some signs here that this might flip? Because I'm looking at it and I don't see any. No, you absolutely nailed it. I, I think there's very little reason to believe that things are going to get better. I mean, you look at his history of hiring – and it isn't great. And even it's not. And some of them are even like pre-championship hires that worked out because they were on a title team. But Bill Johnson is D-line coach, or James Craig is O-line coach. I mean, the list goes on. And and there's a lot, and there's things like Dave Aranda kept a lot of things afloat that I don't think a lot of people realize. He was kind of always like the grown up in the room. Some would put it. You know, he's been gone. Things like that. There's. I know Joe Brady is an all-time hire. And again, I, I want to be clear. I give him credit for 2019. But his grand scheme of things, there's little evidence that if you give him another round of hires, it's going to get better. And there's very little evidence that the, the players are going to play harder for him. I mean, they, we're on year two of cultural issues in that locker room, but people not wanting to play for him because of a, a litany of things, to be fair. And then you add in, I mean, there I've talked to coaches in that program who are like, we practice in a very old-fashioned way. And that's another example for me of how 20, like 2019 – it's not that he's been bad all five years. He was getting a claim for how he practiced the first few years. He transitioned from Les Miles' way of practicing. It was a, 
smarter, not harder style of practicing and sharper and efficient. And then you talk to people now and it's like, we're beating them over the heads with stuff and making them do it 20 times. And everyone's just tense. And it's like, he got away from the things that worked well. So there's there are people who are saying our development's not even good because we're not even aside from maybe corners and receivers, not even developing guys. So it's just top to bottom things were headed in the wrong direction. And to everyone's point here, the talent is there to turn it around really quick. There's no reason it can't turn around fast, but there's little reason to believe that Ogeron, unfortunately, was going to be that guy. So why did Brody, why did that happen? Because I remember when he was the interim, the, the practice smarter, not harder was one of the ways that he, he worked to get the job to say, Hey, I'm going to do it differently than Les Miles did. We're going to do it in a way that's going to be more modern. Show what I've learned since the the failure of of me as a head coach at Ole Miss. How did that revert to? I don't. He's not yeah. the guy he was at Ole Miss, but some of that guy crept in the last. No, I think it's a really years. good way to put it. I made sure to make that clear in my story. This is not Ole Miss. This is not like Ed acting like a you know crazy person making his assistants mad. No, it's not. But it's just this slow like this is wrong and now we have to fix it. And then just like slowly, but surely your standards just change, you know, it's yeah, but we have to fix this. So we're going to change this because we have to address this and a little reactive. I think there's a lot of reactionary issues with this whole program right now. A lot of this went wrong. because now we're reacting too hard that way. And I think that's a part of it. And I, and I just think, yeah, I think quite frankly, and I, I hate saying this, but at least I'll, I'll let them say it. at least three sources in my program and the program said in my story, that just post-divorce, or maybe it's post-title. I shouldn't put it on the divorce. That's that's not my business in any world. But it's just there's a noticeable thing of post-title, post-all of that, off-the-field issues with him. You know, we'll get it. We don't have to get into that. But that there was a change, and he kind of one one person said he lost track of who he was. And I think again, it wasn't extreme. He wasn't acting crazy or anything, but just a slow but steady whittling away of the exact standards that got them there. And I think that's the the crazy thing you know there wasn't some huge moment there wasn't some smoking gun about why Ed Ogeron needs to go it was just slowly but steadily I think the next question obviously is, is where do you go from here um I'm very curious we talked a little bit about this last week I'm, I'm very curious to see where the Jimbo call goes and how that plays out I, I think he probably stays but Scott Woodward, I'm sure, will make a run. Brody, where do you see this? What what does the short list look like when you get beyond Jimbo? And what what direction does LSU go? Yeah, yeah. Andy and I have been talking about this nonstop for the past uh, two weeks, I believe. Uh, I think it's something where Scott Woodward is, quite frankly, and I'm sure Andy can confirm this, not exactly a guy who's going to show his cards. He's a tough guy to really mm-hmm. know exactly where he's going to go with things. He's he's a politician deep down who got his start as a political liaison under Mark Emmert. You know, like that is his – he's tough. So I, anything I say is a little speculation, but he's going to go big. You know, you are going to see him look at your James Franklins and your Luke Pickles, and you're going to see him – Shoot, there are even rumors that he's going to make his push for Lincoln Riley. And I don't, again, I don't know, but I think he's going to go for your huge hires. And I think there's a- the worst he can do is say no. Yeah, I like exactly. that idea. Well, uh, yeah, it, I can give you the history behind this because Scott Woodward explained this to me after he hired Jimbo. I, this is when he was still at Texas A&M. He said it, it goes back to when he was at Washington, and he, Steve Sarkeesian leaves for USC, and he's got an opening. 
and he's looking at who you would consider the usual candidates, the candidates that everybody thinks would would want Washington. Uh, Jim Moore Jr. was at UCLA at the time. He was a guy who was from the Seattle area and maybe wanted to come back there. And and so that was the front runner for the job. Scott Woodward did not pursue Chris Peterson initially. He got a call from Chris Peterson's agent saying, hey, would you be interested in Chris? And at that point, he stopped the search and was like, yes, we, we are interested. We will hire him. Whatever it takes, we want him. And, and that changed his mindset as far as coaching searches go. He's now become an elephant hunter, essentially. You know, in Texas, with the Texas A&M situation, I remember Billy Lucci and I, he, the, the Billy Lucci from Texags, the summer before Kevin Sumlin got fired, we sat or we were sitting in a bar in College Station, and we were like, "Okay, if he gets fired, who's the only person that's going to satisfy this, the fan base? Who who would say, who would make these people happy?" And we're like, "Well, it'd have to be someone with the national title." And we're like, "But Urban Meyer's not leaving Ohio State, and Nick Saban's not leaving Alabama, and Dabo Sweeney's not leaving Clemson. That only leaves Nick Saban, or that only leaves Jimbo Fisher." Who's, who's somewhat unhappy at Florida State. And we both just kind of laugh because we're like, no, nah, there's no way they're going to be able to pull that off. And sure enough, they pulled it off. So that is the, the, the type of guy you're working with. Like Brody said, he's a political operative. He's, he's going to have to marshal the support of everybody there to get the money in line to go after these people we're talking about, these names we're talking about. And, and I will tell you right now, the, the unhappiest people in the world today are USC officials because suddenly their job is not the best job because I don't care what you say that the path is easier in the Pac-12 than it is in the SEC West. You're not wrong about that. But the fact of the matter is the last three coaches at LSU have won the national title, including one who won a national title while Nick Saban was at Alabama. Actually, I guess two of them won a national title while Nick Saban was at Alabama. Now, Miles's one happened when the year they lost to Louisiana Monroe, but Orgeron's happened at the height of Nick Saban's powers. And so that tells you what you can do to LSU. So if you're James Franklin and, and you were, you know, weighing, do I stay at Penn State? Do I go to USC? Which are both incredible jobs. LSU's probably better. You know, if you're Mario Cristobal and you're not even looking at USC, because why would you put yourself two or three years behind the school you were already at in your own conference? Well, maybe you look at LSU because that's different. That's a place where you can win national titles, and maybe you can at Oregon, but you definitely can at LSU, and that changes the math on all of this. I would agree. I think the question that I am most curious about moving forward is sort of how many swings do you take before things get a little bit awkward? LSU is a great job. LSU is going to have a ton of really good options, but it, it comes down to every coach's situation. Do you want to to make that move and and move in there? For some coaches, they might prefer the USC job um, for a variety of reasons. Living in LA, like you said, the easier path. Uh, different strokes for different folks, as they say. Brody, you live in New Orleans. You are well versed in the LSU uh, sphere ecosystem. Who, who would be the front runner among the fans? Who would satisfy the fans? Because that matters. There is a clear answer there. The fans are very interested in Lane Kiffin. And I think there are a lot of people in Louisiana. And I'm not even saying Scott Woodward isn't. I don't know right now. But there are a lot of people who very much want Lane Kiffin. And I think there is a real, and this part's valid across the board, I think there's a real movement toward 
wanting somebody who can develop quarterback, somebody who can have that offense. And some of it might be a little reactionary from it where you there's there's an anger about having a CEO type guy who isn't really running scheme on either side of the ball. And they want somebody who's that offensive scheme guy. I would argue that's slightly reactionary. Like Ed's an extreme of the CEO style. Like most CEO coaches still are a scheme guy very strongly in some way. Like or started there and then became a exactly. CEO. Exactly. Ed's an extreme. Except for Dabo, Ed, Ed's yes. Dabo essentially. Yes. Except Dabo's been able to, exactly. to sustain it. But I, I, I'm with you, Brody, on, on that. I definitely get the sense that the Lane Kiffin love is strong, but I, I think Woodward probably aims a little higher in terms of what people have actually accomplished. I'm with a, Andy. Lane Kiffin would be very fun, but if you're looking at resume, even though I think Lane Kiffin would do really well at LSU, there there are sure things that I think are out there for them. And, uh, you know, LSU would be really – LSU and Lane Kiffin would be an incredible marriage for a number of reasons. But if you're looking for who gives us the best chance to win a national title, which is what that's what this hire is about. Who gives us the best chance to win a national title if you're LSU? I don't think the answer to that is Lane Kiffin. Um, and, and that will be interesting. But I think there are people who can satisfy them who aren't quite as entertaining as Lane. That's the thing. I'm not even saying Lane is Scott Woodward's number one. I think there's yeah. I think I think he's gonna shoot for some of the biggest fish that are out there, as we know, as we just talked about with how he tends to do things, but I do have a gut feeling it's gonna be someone in that world. And the Lane one would just be John Gruden's free if we need him. What's that? John Gruden's free if we need him. He's around. Great call. I mean, <laughs> I know some of the candidates coming out, I'm just like, because trust me, every rumor is out there right now. And I'm like don't get me wrong. We know Ed Ogeron is deep down probably getting fired because of not winning. But a lot of the reasons off the field that are being used to make this happen, like how are you going to go from that to other people who have other massive red flags off the field? Yeah. I just wonder about that. Yeah. Well, hey, Urban Meyer won. LSU today. is – So stop it right now. <laughs> he's, he's, he's won an NFL game now. Wait, there who? There you go. <laughs> Uh, that is uh, he, he coached at a few different places. He went one and zero this week in the NFL, and not only that, he flew three thousand miles to do it. Uh, the the uh, the incomparable Urban Meyer. <laughs> uh, well, LSU is going to be quite a place moving forward. I think they, you know, this has been a long time coming, as you wrote, Brody. There's a lot of unanswered questions. I, it'll be interesting to see what LSU. Um, Looks like the rest of the season. The last time I remember Ed Orgeron coaching as a lame duck coach, uh, he got it rolling at USC. <laughs> so we'll see what LSU looks like uh, the last few games. And, of course, as this search, you know, you're going to see Scott Woodward start to do his homework. I mean, you can't really make a lot of serious moves in the middle of the season. None of those candidates that they're going to be searching for are going to probably entertain a ton of serious conversations quite this early. We're still in the middle of October. Um, but that doesn't stop people like us and plenty of folks, uh, you know, in the LSU LSU ecosystem from from having those conversations. Um, Brody, thank you for joining us and lending us your expertise. If you have not read his stellar piece on how this all went wrong uh, for Ed Orgeron, you need to do that. You can subscribe to the Athletic and get access to that piece and all of our coverage moving forward and all of our uh, stellar college football team. It is great to look at the site on every day of the week, but especially on Sundays after a big game day and see everything that's got that, that we've got and all the ways we've covered it. So Brody, thank you for joining us on football and grits.
No, thank you so much for having me, guys. Take care. Well, Andy, if we thought LSU was crazy, uh, we saw a, a new brand of craziness. I enjoyed on your reaction show, you and Ari reacting live to the zoo that was Neyland Stadium <laughs> at the end of uh, their loss to Ole Miss. Uh, first of all, the biggest winner of the night, Lane Kiffin, who uh, I wrote a column this week, uh, this weekend, reacting to that uh, loss. I, I think Tennessee fans overreact to small slights, and it turns themselves from from victims into villains. And if there was one person on Saturday night who had the most reason to be angry and to wag their finger and say, "Oh, you're so classless," it was Lane Kiffin. And instead, he made light of it. He was, you know, it's obviously, you know, good that nobody got hurt. Um, but Tennessee fans seem to do the opposite when something bad happens to them. And it's not everyone, of course. I think everyone understands that. We've seen overreactions, harassing people, obviously, online. The Rock, Shiano incident, you know, rioting after Lane Kiffin leaves. Every program, some more than others, has bad things happen. But Tennessee fans, when bad things happen, we see them offer up chapters of just insanity. And these things do not happen everywhere else. And like I wrote in the piece, Tennessee fans should inspire sympathy. It's a rough spot for the program to be in. But because of the way that they react to things, it, it has turned them into villains and a punchline in a lot of ways. And and it doesn't have to be this way. I don't know that you can change that, but that's kind of what I kept thinking on Saturday. Is this did not have to be this way. And also, I get that there was a lot of buildup, some questionable calls earlier in the game. But that last call was questionable at worst and probably right and certainly not enough to start raining trash down on the field. What did you make of of what well, what we saw on Saturday at Neyland State? Here's the thing. Tennessee fans should be happy with where their program is It could is be at. much worse. What Josh, yeah. Heupel, what Josh Heupel's done has been pretty amazing. What they should be really upset about is that Hinton Hooker got hurt toward the end of that game because Hinton Hooker has also been amazing for them after transferring to play for the previous coaching staff, basically getting forgotten in camp and told, no, nah, we're going to go with Joe Milton, and still sticking it out and still leading them to a couple of wins and, and making them feel like, okay, this is a program that can get back very quickly. Mm-hmm. And in general, big picture, Tennessee fans should be very happy with where they are. So the the folks, I, I think it was mostly the student section that was doing this. Guys, you're not the only people that have ever been screwed by a bad call. Call Auburn sometime. <laughs> or Arkansas, yeah. rather. Excuse call me. Arkansas against Auburn yes. last year. I mean, it happens. Like there, It happens. You get screwed by calls sometimes. It's part and of screwed is, is and not what happened on Saturday as well. In this, in this, in this particular, particular call, yes. exactly. Like the, there, there was no, there was no overturning. Yeah, the and way the, video the SEC showed. is not going to apologize. They weren't for that. It was maybe iffy. The initial spot was bad, but he didn't get the first down. And even if he did, it doesn't necessarily change the outcome. It's, it's, it's kind of whatever. Right. You got the ball back. You yes. had a chance to win the mm-hmm. game. So it's not, it's not the end of the world. So no, don't do that. Just don't. I, I'm not going to moralize too much, but just don't throw stuff at people. Okay. It's not, it's not cool. Yeah. Like. It was kind of funny watching a mustard bottle on the field, uh, but you, 
don't throw golf balls at people. Why do you have a golf ball at a football stadium anyway? <laughs> I will say, what, I the why? one the one good What's thing the is at least that? it's a scratched up range ball because I feel like if somebody was throwing a Pro V One X at Lane Kiffin, that I feel like is more meaningful almost. If I'm willing to spend six dollars to possibly hit you versus a range ball, which is. Uh, you know, a, quite literally a dime a dozen. So uh, that's that's a little bit different. But, yeah, I mean, like I said, obviously everyone knows that this was not good. Can, can I can I ask you the important Please question, do. David? I always love important questions. What do we think that mustard bottle was? Because I, I suggested Ari on the, the podcast as we were watching it live that somebody yeah, may I run liked, up to the concession stand and grab one. Surely that's the only or, way. Or that, or that maybe they'd brought it down to dress some hot dogs and just left it at their seat. And they're like, oh, here's a, here's a mustard bottle. I'll throw this. But then I was informed by some Tennessee fans on Twitter that that's not what the, the concession stands and the concourses look like at Tennessee. They use the big uh, industrial-sized mustard ketchup Oh, the plot thickens. I missed this. So, so somebody brought that in. And Nicole Auerbach had an interesting theory that it is a flask either hollowed out from a French's mustard bottle or made to look like a French's mustard bottle. Either way, that seems like way too much work. Yeah, I mean, it's not that hard but to get a flask But if that's what it is, I stadium. admire the I mean, effort. I feel like if you just had it in your back pocket, you could probably get a flask. I, and also, just there's going to be some level of mustard, you know, sort of uh, overtures in whatever you fill it with. No matter how much you clean that. You're gonna have some some flavor or smell of mustard. I'm, I'm not going. I don't buy the flask theory, uh, but I hope we can get to the bottom of this. We may never have. We may never know exactly where the mustard bottle came from. But I mean, it's kind of like I said. Everybody knows this is bad. You should, should, this should not have happened. We all know it's not everybody, but it was not one or two people. There were a lot of bottles on the field, Andy, and I think ultimately. You know, it's just sort of, I'm glad that we can sort of kind of laugh about it because nobody got hurt and it wasn't anything super serious. But in the moment, you don't know that. And and I wrote about this, you know, if you're Lane Kiffin, you are responsible for the safety and well-being of what, counting players and staff, 100, 150 people that are on the road with you. And you might be okay, but if you're GA gets hit with a glass bottle or something and he's bleeding or something like that, that's... You know that that's your responsibility, and not that you screwed up, but that's that's something that that if I'm him, I'm kind of freaking out a little bit inside. I was amazed that Lane was kind of able to keep his cool, because like I said, he had every right, certainly more so than Tennessee fans did, to be very angry at what was no, happening. No, I think I think he handled that the, I think he handled that the way yeah. he should have, because now they're even. Yeah, he left them in the middle of the night. Now they've thrown a bunch of stuff at him, including a golf ball from a great distance. <laughs> so it's. It's even, and they're, I think too. <laughs> it's unf- I, I agree with Josh Heupel because it, it overshadowed what was a pretty good performance from their team and a pretty special atmosphere. I mean, last night kind of encapsulated again. Tennessee fans, should, yeah, Tennessee fans. They got two really good. Tennessee games. fans should be thrilled with the way yeah, this season you got, is going. You blow out Missouri, you blow out South Carolina. Things are looking up, and how do fans respond with a atmosphere that? You know, I, on Saturday I was at number one Georgia. They're playing as the number one team in the country against a fellow undefeated team. That Tennessee atmosphere looked just as good, if not better, 
than what I experienced at Georgia. And Georgia, things are going a little bit better for them than Tennessee, but Tennessee fans want that greatness so bad that any time they get a little taste on the tip of their tongue, they show up. And that's not what we're talking about right now. We're talking about an ugly incident at the end, and, and it's unfortunate because, um, you know, that those first three quarters are really what college football is about and really a special time. And instead, you get this ugliness that is unbefitting of any fan base, but we've seen these kinds of things um, in Tennessee in the past that just, again, are overreactions to bad things that happen that <laughs> that happened to a lot of other fan bases, and it's uh, it's unfortunate. But Tennessee, they've got a defense that's better than people realize, that is somehow better than it was last year. We wrote a little bit about this uh, at The Athletic uh, on Monday. Myself and Joe Rex wrote, I think Tim Banks has this defense playing more inside itself, not putting them in positions where they're trying to they're asking them to do things that they can't do. You know, they're up in scoring defense, they're way up in yards per play, and they faced 101 plays against Ole Miss, arguably the best defense in the country, and they gave up 31 points. That's a really successful night. Uh, they were making stops, they got a stop after all that when they really needed one to give themselves a chance. And uh you know, that's it, it, it was a great game and a great atmosphere, and it was marred at the end by, you know, an ugly situation. So, you know, we'll see. Hopefully we don't – I'm very curious to see what the end game here is for the SEC. I think a hefty fine is coming. We'll be interested to see if, you know, does this affect alcohol sales at Neyland Stadium? Does this affect the game day experience at, at Neyland Stadium? Do we see changes in the future? Uh, all those things I think are on the table, um, and we'll see. But – uh, unfortunate, David. I, I don't. I don't think nine dollar beers. I don't this. either. But I think if you're Tennessee, Ma- but maybe, this is maybe whatever's somewhat, in the French's mustard bottle. It's somewhat, but it. it's somewhat cosmetic, right? Because if this happens and you do nothing, then it says, "Well, you're sort of condoning that, right?" Fair or not, and I would argue it's not fair. That's going to be kind of the perception. You have to kind of do something, and I don't know exactly how you prevent that. But at least in and again, cosmetic change or otherwise, if you say we're going to limit alcohol sales or stop it for a while you know cosmetic change or not that at least tells people we're trying to do something to to curb fan behavior and prevent this from happening again because I think it's going to be a tough sell for Tennessee to just do nothing and you look at the statements especially from Chancellor Dante Plowman uh pretty stern uh I have a hard time believing they're not going to do anything even if I agree with you that I don't we, think we shall here. see yeah I, I just I know everybody thinks you have to do something. I, I don't know that you have to do something. Maybe some people should just think about what their think about their actions and and next time don't do it. Yeah. Just don't throw stuff. Like it's not that complicated. Don't yeah. throw stuff. You shouldn't don't ruin it for the rest of the stadium. I'm sure other people want to pay the University of Tennessee for $9 beers. I don't think the student section is buying a lot of $9 <laughs> no, beers to be not. honest with you. So <laughs> yeah. You you can you can you can Yank those beer sales away. It's not going to change anything. It won't fix the problem you're trying. I to agree fix. with you. It just the the people who are acting out need to realize you're not that special. Stop it. There's another fan base. I don't think they would have thrown anything, but I think they would have been really loud had the game that took place yesterday been at their stadium instead of on the road. We already talked about LSU and what happens next there. And I, while I will throw one other candidate. That I, Bruce Feldman, our colleague, wrote a, a piece on potential candidates for, for LSU. Let me throw one more at you, David. Mel Tucker at Michigan State. He's got them 7-0. and This is his second year there. He inherited an absolute disaster 
there and and suddenly flipped the culture very quickly. Great work in the transfer mm-hmm. portal. Seems to have them in the right direction. So that's another one that Bruce threw out there that I think is a really good one to yeah. watch for that job. But the other side of that game, Florida was not supposed to lose to LSU. Florida was supposed to beat LSU, and then Ed Orgeron would, would be you know, handled, and that, that was going to be done. But LSU won that game, and Florida leaves with a very complicated situation because you have a defense that could not stop the same two plays over and over, and Todd Grantham has been under fire for essentially a year and a half now. And at some point, that comes mm-hmm. to a head. Then you have the offense where Emory Jones throws a pick six right off the bat in the second half, gets replaced by Anthony Richardson, who leads four consecutive touchdown drives and looks like he's better at running the offense than Emory Jones is. So now Dan Mullen is sitting here. By the way, Dan Mullen, this is an interesting set. Do you know what Dan Mullen's record is in his last eight games against Power 5 competition? Uh, I believe it's like two and six. It is two and six. That's right. So Florida's not in a great place vis-a-vis where Florida fans expect them to be. And Mullen actually created a term for this, which is now coming back to bite him in the butt, called the Gator Standard. Well, Florida fans think the Gator Standard is you compete for championships all the time. But... Right now, the best they can do is 9-3, and three, and that would require them to beat Georgia, which nothing they've done suggests they can no. beat Georgia. So now you have the situation with Anthony Richardson and Emory Jones. I think it's very similar to the Oklahoma quarterback situation coming out of the Oklahoma-Texas game. Anyone with eyes knew that Caleb Williams was better than Spencer Rattler and needed to be the starting quarterback, and sure enough, Caleb Williams started. And we've seen more of Anthony Richardson than we had of Caleb Williams. It wasn't quite as dramatic, but but we've seen enough to say, ah, that guy needs more playing time. (laughs) I I mean, I think we we saw probably the changing of the guard. If not only because of the performance, but obviously you, you lose that game and the stakes are a little bit lower uh, when you lose and, and uh, uh, making that switch. So I think it's, um, I mean, people have been clamoring for this. I, I think it's, I think it comes down to upside ultimately. You know the quarterback situation is almost kind of secondary next to the like the big picture concerns about Florida, but if you have that upside and you start to fulfill it, that can fix a lot of the big picture issues. If Anthony Richardson starts blossoming into this special player, well, one you're going to be better now because I think he might already be better right now than Emory Jones. I don't see as much upside with Emory Jones, but then when you, when you know we, we were talking about Ed Orgeron earlier, and you look and say. I don't see anything in the future that tells me this can change. Well, if you got Anthony Richardson and he goes on a tear these next four or five games, even if you lose a couple of them, then you say, well, I'm really excited for 2022 because we've got Anthony Richardson and he's going to be special. And it makes the offseason a little bit better. Maybe you lose some games next year and that good faith is gone. But at some point that has to enter into the equation because if you ride it out with Emory Jones – and you kind of sprinkle in Anthony Richardson for the rest of the season, and Anthony Richardson compl- com- continues being special. The narrative is not that. The narrative is we got this guy, this Ferrari, and Dan Mullen keeps him in the garage. And then on top of that, you have the what we've talked well, about there, previously. There will be what no, you and, what David, you and Ari there will be about no narrative risk. if that happens. Yeah, the flight risk of Anthony Richardson. There's, as well. no, there's no narrative if that's that. It's not a risk, David. If that's what happens, Anthony Richardson plays for somebody else in 2022. It's not a risk. I'm, I don't believe it's as it certain as you do. I don't believe now. it's as certain as you do. I, I think it's definitely a I, major risk. I guarantee you that will happen. 
I guarantee you that is what <laughs> Sounds happens. like we need some sort of uh, we need some sort of sadistic bet on this, Andy. I don't think that we're gonna have to live it out because I think it's gonna be Anthony Richardson's job moving forward. Uh, but uh, we will see. I, that yesterday was as was as uh, softened on his Emory Jones stance as we've heard Dan Mullen still not exactly singing Anthony Richardson's praises uh, for for whatever reason, but. I like I, I'm not as certain that it's going to be uh, by by Anthony Richardson as you are, but I agree that that's something that you have to very much consider. I am all right, all right, <laughs> David. <laughs> it, it's it's like it's like Spencer Rattler. Is Spencer Rattler going to play for Oklahoma next year? Of course yeah. he's not. Let's not be stupid about this. Like you can transfer and play somewhere else immediately. Anthony Richardson right now, if he went somewhere else, could start for a hundred twenty or yeah, more teams. I would agree. I would agree. If he's if he's the backup at the end of the season at Florida, he's gone. Emory Jones, if he's the backup at the end of the season at Florida, he's also gone. That's just how it works yeah. now. I think I'd probably agree, uh, big picture, uh, but maybe not immediately. Uh, Andy, uh, I was asked on the radio this week who I thought the second best team in the country was. Um, I did not look to the Big Ten for my answer, Andy. Uh, I had a hard time believing it was still anybody other than Alabama. And on Saturday, we saw them flex a little bit. I thought we might get an Alabama flex game here, just an angry Crimson Tide team, uh, and we did. They're well-suited to slow down Mississippi State's offense. Uh, their defense, Mississippi State's defense is okay, but Alabama just too much. And when you can't move the ball and you're facing more plays, um, you're going to get scores like uh, 49-9. And... You know, I didn't after the uh, Texas A&M game. I didn't have a lot of big picture questions about Alabama. I thought it was a a bad game in a difficult spot. They didn't play particularly well. They they're obviously Texas A&M Super Bowl. I thought they'd still be okay. I, you know, there's I don't think they're a better team than Georgia. That seems pretty obvious to me. But if you took Alabama on a neutral field with every other team in the country, I'd still take them. And we saw why. What did you make of Alabama's return to the field after Texas A&M? I thought this was exactly what they needed. I, I think the two interceptions early were, were the ones that really did it. The the first one by Job that sets up the, the quick touchdown pass, and then the next one by Jordan Battle where he takes it all the way back. The game was essentially over when Jordan Battle took that, that, that pick back. And then they just sort of kept Mississippi State trying to, to – do something, trying to make something big happen, and they they couldn't, they never could, and so that's Alabama at its best when it rocks the the, the opponent on its heels, and the opponent is is trying to come back the whole time. Uh, we have not seen a lot where the opponent jumps on Alabama. We saw that with Texas A and M. So, are there any opponents left on Alabama's schedule that could jump on them? I don't, I'm not sure there are. I don't see. Uh, it. You I know, mean, obviously, obviously, LSU looks like there, it's but, had a renaissance yeah. running the ball, but no. I. I think that's probably more of a function of, of Florida's mm-hmm. defense than, than what LSU is doing offensively. So, yeah, I, I think Alabama is going to have games like this probably until Atlanta where they will see It Georgia. would feel – I mean, what, Andy, would it not feel wrong if Georgia got to the SEC championship and they didn't have to go through Bama to get to the playoff? It would to me, right? If this is the year for Georgia, which it looks well, that's like, already that's already happened. Well, I know, but I'm just, that's already happened. They, they beat Auburn to make the playoff. In I know, but I'm just saying I want to see them have to go through Alabama to reach their their dreams and do the things that they want to do. 
Um, I want to see it, and so I think we will, um, but time will tell. Also, Andy, this week I, I put it in writing, something we have been discussing on this show, the Jordan Davis Heisman candidacy. Yesterday was, uh, or Saturday I should say, was an incredible Jordan Davis game, just absolutely wrecking Kentucky's front. They could not run the ball. Blocked one kick, kind of blocked the second kick. Him and Devontae Wyatt just completely collapsed Georgia's, uh, the, the left side of their line and uh, uh, pushed. The, the cleat slide from the Georgia offensive lineman was... The, the, you mean Kentucky yes. 68? Yeah, I felt I, bad for him. We're not going to name him. I felt him. bad for that I, man. It, but the, uh, but the, it, was, it, was like watching, it was like watching a semi-truck hit a car that's yeah. parked. Basically, and it slides. But here's the issue, Andy. I, I, I feel in some ways like I'm screaming into the void. Why will people not take defensive players seriously for the Heisman? Why is this so hard for people? Because I think people who pay attention, I think I made a good case for Jordan Davis. I think people who pay attention see him and say he's one of the best players in the country. I think the similar thing with Chase Young to some degree before he kind of cooled off late in the season a couple years ago. But these guys just don't get votes almost ever. Why is it so hard for the electorate to take this seriously? It's it's hard because most of the electorate doesn't understand football. Like, they don't understand how it's actually played and, and what actually matters. They're following the ball. That, oh, the quarterback has the ball, and he throws it to the receiver, and those are the people making yeah. the plays. Well, a great nose tackle can affect Everything. every play Everything. he's on the field. <laughs> every single play. And, and that's where Jordan Davis is, is so important to what Georgia does because, listen, if you have to dedicate more than one offensive line to him, or more than one offensive lineman to him, he's already won. If you have to have one of your linemen or two of your linemen push into the backfield, the whole defense has already mm-hmm. won. They have blown up your play from the inside out. There's so little you can do. You have to scheme around that so much. It, it takes so much of your offense out of the playbook that it's it's incredible. And I understand why quarterbacks usually win because they do have the ball in their hands every play. They affect the They game show up on SportsCenter a lot more than Jordan Davis does. And I'm not sure but, how much more but, complicated it is than that, quite frankly. Well, uh, well, a great but a great nose guard affects the game an awful lot. Yeah. And that's why this is a guy you should and absolutely I, and, consider. And one of the things I tried to write about... He, he, He'd be first on my ballot if we voted today. Same here, Andy. Same here. And I think, here's the thing. This is what I think people don't really understand is, uh, Kirby Smart, I asked him about this yesterday, and he kind of hit on some of it. They can, Georgia's defense is great in part because they can consistently get pressure with three or four guys. And when you can do that, and a lot of that, uh, not only in stopping the run and getting the defense into bad situations, uh, throwing guys off of blocks. When you got two or three guys that are focused on him, your blitz packages get a little bit easier to, to scheme up. But they can do things on the back end because of his existence. That like obviously they're not going to show up in the in the uh, in the box score. I think he had three tackles yesterday. All those things. But I would just challenge if you're listening to this to this to this podcast and you have a Heisman ballot. There's like 900 Heisman voters, Andy. It's it's too much, quite frankly. Uh, I have a vote. I believe you have a vote, right? I think so. Yeah, I do have a vote. Yes. Watch, I, watch I voted, Jordan Davis. My, the, my first year vote. Yeah, my first year voting, I voted for Indomitian. And he should have been. He should have. I have not him. voted for another yeah. lineman. I have not voted for another lineman first. I'll tell you that because listen, the quarterbacks who won Devon, I had Devonte Smith first I did last too. year. Mm-hmm. 
I thought they were the best player yeah. in the country. Yeah. But I know Ndamukong and Sue is the best player in the country. I did not have a vote back then, but I'm I would have voted sure. for him. The Mark Ingram yeah. thing was ridiculous. Mark In- yeah. He won. I don't think he was the best player in Alabama. <laughs> no, that he wasn't. That was probably Rolando yeah. McClain. And so, again, if you have a vote or you know someone who have a vote has a vote, go watch Jordan Davis. Just watch him for 10 plays and tell me what you see because you'll see something special. Um, I, I just – it is uh, – it's, it's, it's unfortunate, Andy, because – uh, this is something that people should take more seriously. Um, well, any a good week of SEC football, uh, and a memorable week. Not quite as wild as last week, but Tennessee tried its best to uh, make it a week that certainly none of us will will forget anytime soon. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you uh, for uh, checking us out. If you are not subscribed to the show, you should change that. And. Uh, you can have this show delivered to your device directly instead of having to search us out. You know you want to do that. Leave us a review, rate, subscribe, all those good things. Thank you guys for listening. For Andy Staples, I'm David Ubb, and this has been Football and Grits. We'll see you guys again next week. Mm-hmm.